Well, good morning. I couldn't help but uh, as I was sitting out here and watching the conclusion of the baptism ceremony and then also watching them move the pulpit back up here, how heavy my friend Neil Stevens made this pulpit in putting it back here. And there may be a few of you who might wonder, why do we do that? Why even bother to to move it back over here and, and put it in the front of the sanctuary? Well, we're doing so by statement to say that we are coming to hear from the Word of God. Uh, I I know I could do it without uh, a pulpit being in place here, but we want you to know that whoever stands behind here has been carefully preparing a message from God. They've been studying God's Word, and they're coming with the expectation that they're coming in His authority. And so we take what we do very seriously when we preach here. We want to know what God is saying to us, and we want to be obedient to that because it is the very words of our Lord. So if you would, join me in prayer as we wait in expectation to hear from God. Lord, I realize what a precious privilege it is to be able to to stand here and be the one, Lord, that, that you have designated on this day to bring this particular message. And so, Lord, I pray that Um, we would be in a position, Lord, where we would receive, that, Lord, we would understand uh, that you came to serve us, and in the midst of that, Lord, it would cause us to reciprocate in service alike to our brothers and sisters and to the rest of the world. We pray, Lord, that as we hear from your word, you would use it to, to change us, to transform us, and we know that can be the case due to the transforming power of the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to regenerate us and turn our hearts back towards you. So, Lord, we approach you in Christ's righteousness, and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us through your Spirit. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. This is found on page 825 of your Pew Bible. Now, you can follow along in your worship guide, but it might be helpful to have your Bibles open as I refer back to the previous chapter here. Because for the last few weeks, we have seen how the Lord Jesus speaks of his future reign. For example, ever since we started chapter 19, his lessons have been framed within this kingdom language. Jesus has made reference to the kingdom of heaven in chapter 19, verse 12, chapter 19, verse 14, and 19, verse 23, and also in chapter 20, verse 1. He speaks of this kingdom as being eternal in response to the rich young man's question in chapter 19, verse 16, and also how one enters into it in chapter 19, verse 29. He speaks of a time when when people will see him sitting on his throne in chapter 19, verse 28, and the disciples will be joining him on their own thrones in that same verse. And in the next verse after that, he speaks of eternal riches that are a hundredfold to what can be earned on the earth. He uses the phrase new world here in chapter 19, verse 28. It's translated as new world in the ESV, but in the Greek, it is the word palagensia, which properly translated is the word regeneration, meaning this current world will be made anew. This will be the era after the Lord Jesus completes his work in redeeming his people on the cross and his later second coming in judgment. It refers to his eternal rule without rebellion of sin. No more sickness, no more death, no more corruption, no more lawlessness. All will be renewed to its rightful order. 
The Holman Christian Standard translates this word as messianic age, which is not too far off from the mark here. And already Jesus is teaching that his kingdom is unlike the kingdoms of this present world. In fact, he turns the world's values upside down. What matters to Jesus is often discarded by the world. And what the world admires is nowhere near as significant to our king. In chapter 19, verse 1, we see that the sick matter to Jesus as he takes time to heal them. We've also seen how he has love and concern for the married and the unmarried and the spouse that could be easily discarded for children and for parents. He values the soul of the wealthy young man over his riches and his external obedience to the law. Fishermen and tax collectors, zealots and doubters will sit on thrones in his kingdom. In our Lord's view, those who consider themselves first shall be last, and those who are last will be first. But while we talk of this final kingdom to come, what theologians refer to as the eschatological kingdom, our Lord is demonstrating this value system within his current ministry, and he wants his followers to do the same. They're not to wait until the final kingdom arrives to implement this principle of the first last and the last first. Jesus expects this value system to occur now, before his second coming. So at the Waddell household, we used to keep little Debbie cakes up on top of the refrigerator to help our small children avoid the temptation of snacking. When Abby was about four or five years old, she finally noticed where we kept them. And she asked, Daddy, what are those? And I said, those are oatmeal cream pies. And she said, can we have one? And I said, no, those are only for after dinner. And she replied, yes, but we can practice now. (laughs) What a clever girl. That was certainly a case of her wanting the last to be first. But similarly, Jesus doesn't want us to wait until the eschatological kingdom to have his value system. He wants us to put it into practice right now. He's doing the same in his earthly ministry. After teaching a parable based upon the principle of the first last and the last first, he tells his disciples precisely why he is headed to Jerusalem. Three points of data are revealed here. Jesus discloses his mission. He describes extreme suffering. And yet that suffering is followed by victory. So first, Jesus pulls his disciples aside to reveal to them that he is on his way to the capital city to die. Jesus is not withholding any information from his followers. He is treating them as friends, just as he told them in John 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for I have heard from my father, and I have made known what I have heard from my father I have made known to you. He is telling them precisely what will happen to him before he arrives in Jerusalem. And like us now, he wants them to count the cost beforehand, before they commit to following him there, knowing that is what is expected. He's allowing them to bail out on him anytime they want to do so. And just so we don't miss the point for ourselves, even in this day and age, the Gospels reveal that we will be persecuted for following Jesus. We will be countercultural. If you become a Christian, things will not be all rose petals and rainbows. 
We should expect the world to dislike us as we tell them that there is one higher than us and that all of us are held accountable by him. Previously in this gospel, Jesus has already taught in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he also warned them again in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is always, always, always honest with his followers. He tells us what we can expect to happen before it occurs. The cost may be high, but the payoff in the end is extraordinary. Second, he reveals that he personally, the Son of Man, will experience great suffering. Verse 18, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has been portraying himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He will be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He will be completely innocent. He has done no violence, nor is there any deceit in his mouth. Yet he will be stricken for the transgressions of God's people. He will allow himself to fall into the hands of these evil men to be tortured and to be hung on a cross that he might receive the punishment for the sin of those who will believe in him. By his blood will this servant of God make many to be accounted as righteous before the Lord. As I said last week, who expects a king to assume his throne by being hung on a cross? But don't miss the hope that's also here in verse 19. This king does not die and stay in the grave. This is his most important point. He rises again three days later. Death cannot hold him. He will prove that there is an afterlife to come through his physical resurrection. This rightful king is the rightful conqueror. He defeats the greatest foe of all mankind, sin and its penalty, death. Jesus cannot be stopped from assuming his throne. Every knee in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Despite the extreme suffering of this servant, despite being put to death, this servant will rule and reign victoriously for all of eternity. Christian, do you believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe he's reigning? Do you? Then take heart as we endure, for in this world our afflictions are light and momentary compared to the endless glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. If we can keep our focus on Jesus Christ risen from the dead, then we can get a little pep in our step. We can endure a little bit more. We can hope in the midst of our tragedies, knowing that all things will be made anew. Jesus is alive, and he is reigning on his throne, and he will renew all things without the contamination of sin. Whatever is your deepest longing of your heart and your soul right now, Jesus promises he will be enough to fill that void when he reign with him in all of eternity.
So what to do until then? How is a Christian supposed to respond? By faith, we prove the lordship of Jesus in our lives by valuing what he values, by living in such a way that his heart is our heart. And we have the perfect episode demonstrating this in verses 20 through 28. We're about to see a bold request here, a challenge of readiness, and a renewal of Christian ambition. That's a bold request, a challenge of readiness, and a renewal of Christian ambition. So let's delve into this. It's amazingly providential how this occurs. Jesus has his disciples all huddled up here, and he just gets finished describing how he must be the suffering servant. And look at those words he uses. Condemned, delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, flogged, crucified. And that is the moment when the mother of James and John butts in and asks Jesus for a favor. The Greek word there, tote, translated as then in your Bibles, implies this happened immediately after our Lord's prediction. She inserts herself into this holy huddle, and she makes her demand in the presence of her sons and the other disciples. She makes a bold request here. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, before we pass judgment on the mama of the sons of thunder here, Let's take stock in what we can infer from her request. I think we can say two things about it. One, she believed that Jesus was king. That is proven in that she kneels before him in her request. She believes he has the power to grant such a request. And two, that he would have a powerful kingdom one day, one that is large enough that her sons would benefit from the prestige of sitting in the positions of favor. Most likely, she heard Jesus speak about those 12 thrones back in chapter 19, verse 28. And she wants her sons to have the best advantages. Now, that's a pretty audacious request here. Now, before we move ahead, we should recognize that throughout his ministry, Jesus had a soft spot for women, especially mamas. Again, this is completely unlike the value system of his contemporary world where women were used as bargaining chips through arranged marriages to heighten the prestige of a family. Don't forget, back in chapter 19, Jesus diverted time from a mission in order to heal a woman from her continuous discharge that prevented her from taking part in the sacred assembly. Also remember the Gentile mother who came to Jesus and begged him to free her daughter from demon oppression. In both cases, Jesus met their need. In Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 15, Jesus watched a funeral procession of a widow's son. He had compassion upon this mother. It moved him to raise her son from the dead. And the text tells us that he presented him back to the mother instead of asking the raised son to follow him. We might consider other episodes where he shows compassion to women, such as the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who had four husbands, or maybe even the request of his own mother in John chapter 2 when a wedding party embarrassingly ran out of wine and he made more from water. Maybe James and John had noticed this and even put their mother up to it. Or perhaps it was just her zeal to see her son succeed. Or a combination of both mother and son seeking positions of power. In fact, Jesus' response to the question implies that both parties are responsible here. His next two sentences are expressed in the second person plural. 
We might translate this as y'all. Neither sons nor mother has a clue what she is asking for, what it takes to get to these seats of prestige. So he puts a challenge to the sons. Again, this is a second person plural. Are y'all able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And the two boys flippantly answer, no hesitation in their response, yes, we are able. Now, if this had been me, I would have at least asked, what cup? Wouldn't you? Perhaps they might have assumed this would be the cup of communion that would be offered at the banquet table of a king. When one drank at the king's table from his cup, they were aligning themselves with the sovereign. By drinking at this table, they would be saying, we are your allies. But Jesus always presents his personal cup in a different manner. When Jesus speaks of drinking the cup, it is always in reference to doing the will of the Father. Perfect obedience, even if the Father demands suffering. This is conveyed when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus institutes it in Matthew chapter 26, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. It represented Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that was required for the forgiveness of sins. And no doubt the Christian thinks of Christ prayerful agony in the garden when Jesus prays to the Father before the crucifixion, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup is the Father's will, perfect conformity to it. A little later on that same night when Jesus is arrested, Peter tries to prevent it with his sword. And Jesus states in John 18, 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Drinking from this figurative cup was all in ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 51, 22. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. That is because Christ has taken it on his people's behalf at the cross. But the next verse of that prophecy tells us that God will give that same cup in wrath on his enemies those that refuse to come to Christ by faith. Perhaps the sons of thunder should have thought through this challenge of a cup a little more before answering yes. But by God's grace, they will drink of his cup. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The disciples will do the Father's will. The historical accounts of the New Testament confirm that James and John will be obedient to the Father's desires, though they didn't understand it at this point. James will be the first disciple to die as a martyr. He will be beheaded by Herod Antipas, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And it's somewhat sad that we don't even know the circumstances in which he laid down his life. Luke reports it just as a matter of fact. But God knows. 
God is completely aware because he sees all, and James's sacrifice was meaningful to his God and Savior. The book of Revelation tells us that John was the last disciple to die, but he did so on exile on the unhospitable Isle of Patmos. Both were willing to give up life and home for the cause of Christ. They do drink from the cup. But the other ten disciples hear this request, and they're not happy that James and John tried to cut the line, much like my McDonald's story from last week. They begin to grumble. They are indignant that someone would try to go to the head of the line. They don't like the idea of someone moving ahead of them. That favored position should be earned. Now, I won't speak for you, but I can be so prideful and think the same thing. Look, look at that other pastor over there. He's getting all the attention. Sure, he's got time to write 10 books, mainly because he's not serving his people like I am. No one here is noticing me. How can I gain prestige in the world's eyes? And there's the rub, isn't it? What does the world think successful compared to what God deems successful? After all, both are watching the world and God, but only one can see it all. Actions, heart, mind, motivation. God sees it all. And he remembers it all, too. The world judges by what will pass away. Awards, achievements, trophies, gold records. Let let me give you an example. Who won the Oscar for Best Actress in 1973? Anybody know off the top of your head? It was Glenda Jackson. She won it for a movie called A Touch of Class. It was actually her second Oscar. She had won one previously in 1970 for Women in Love. She even served as a member for Parliament for over 20 years. You may say, well, Blair, she was before my time. I've never heard of her. But that's the point. Fame is fleeting. But God sees all. He sees the coach that's cutting corners by cheating, and he sees the mother that's just praying just to make it through her day with her sanity intact. He sees the politician who receives the kickback, and he sees the poor man who returns the wallet to its rightful owner. God measures success by faithfulness to the moment, not worldly success. I'm going to say that again. God measures success by faithfulness to the moment, not by worldly success. And it's because of this that Jesus needs to renew the disciples' understanding of Christian ambition. He already talked a little bit about this back in Matthew chapter 18. So he says, huddle up, boys. And the first things he states is how the world views success. He will use the word ethnos here, which is translated as Gentile in the ESV. It could also be translated as nations. It's not just a pejorative, but also a way of saying those outside the true people of God. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, or nations, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
That is the state of the first century world and it's also the state of our contemporary society. People want power and recognition. I dare say it's the reason why we have a megalomaniac illegally invading a democratic nation. It's an individual seeking power where he can place people under his thumb. Now, pay close attention here to what Jesus is saying in verse 25 because it matters here. Jesus is not against authority. After all, he is the king of the universe. He holds authority over all things. As the creator, God has designed order and hierarchy in his creation. Authority is not the problem. It is how the authority is used. That's the issue. Jesus says the nations like to use it to lord over others. This word could be translated as master or domineer. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, where elders of churches are told not to domineer those that are in their charge. It is this domineering that the world perceives those in power as being great. That's true. That's how the world views it. In fact, let me give you an example. Michael Jordan is considered the greatest basketball player of all time. And if you watch his documentary, The Last Dance, he is open and he is honest by revealing that he wanted to dominate not just his opponents, but his teammates as well. Well, you might say, well, that's what it takes to succeed. That's what makes him great, that, that he would do anything to become the greatest. Listen to yourself. The only man who has conquered the known Western world is referred to as Alexander the Great. This is the way of the world. This is what the world values, those seeking to be first by striving to be first at any cost. But Jesus values service above accolades and achievements. So he says here in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Again, these are second-person plurals. And in these two verses, he goes from lower to lowest. It shall not be so among y'all, but whoever would be great among y'all must be your servant. Diakonos. This is the same word where we get deacon from. It, it means to serve by waiting tables. But Jesus takes it a step up or a step lower, as the case may be. And whoever wants to be first among y'all, you servants, must become y'all's slave. This is the Greek word doulos. It's the lowest position one can hold in society. You want to be the greatest, then you must outserve one another. You have to go lower than your peers, lower than the other apostles. So think about this for a moment. If Jesus is not against authority, then he expects those who are in authority to use their powers, so to speak, to serve others, which makes power and authority in the kingdom a matter of being faithful to whatever position God has called you to for his purposes. Greatness is to be found in how you are serving. Greatness is to be found in how you are serving. In my eyes, pastors slash elders should be out serving the average church member. 
Now, please, again, don't misunderstand. They use whatever gifts God has given them to serve, most likely to teach, to counsel, to preach, to to pray for their people. That doesn't necessarily mean that elders should be the ones to clean the bathrooms, for example. But they should be willing to clean the bathrooms if needed. Husbands and fathers are not supposed to be domineering in the household. And if that is your view, then you need to repent immediately. If God gives you the responsibility of a precious wife or child, then you are to serve them. That is how you are to become great. Serving means making hard choices for your family, saying difficult things like, we need to cut off the TV right now because of the subject matter. We need to get up this morning. We need to go to worship. We need to have prayer right now. Husbands should be out-serving their wives. Fathers should be out-serving their children. Politicians should be out-serving their constituents. This is why I don't have a problem endorsing Doc. I've never seen Philip use his position for anything other than service, whether he's leading music or leading the youth or, or even as a soccer referee. Now, Philip, please don't get me in trouble by using that in some kind of campaign ad right now. If we would become great, we must become a servant to all. So here's the comparison. Here's the example to be followed here. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there is anyone who could have demanded that everyone prostrate themselves before his feet, it was the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether on thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If there was ever a human being that could have held mastery over us, that could have domineered us, it was Jesus. But he came first to serve us. He came to give his life for others. In the previous parable, he portrays himself as the generous master, rewarding beyond expectations. How could we not desire to do the same? What grace, what love. We even love him because he first loved us and demonstrated it to us. It's an amazing way through the cross. So brothers and sisters, as we contemplate the example of our king, do we need to renew our understanding of Christian ambition? If the first are last and the last first, what are we doing to serve others in our congregation and in our community? No, I'm going to challenge you here. Now, my intent is not to bring on guilt, but... But for the majority of us, we do need to consider this question. How am I serving others right now? I'm going to take this question from personal to community. Let's start with personal. How am I serving in my family? Moms, dad, are you serving your kids for the sake of Christ, or are you serving them to live vicariously through them, or to either atone for mistakes of your past or make up for missed opportunities in your past? 
the way you can tell is by what you're teaching them what should be the most valuable thing to them. As Tony Campala used to say, do they value titles or a testimony of faithfulness to God? Do they value the obedience to the rules more than they value the Lord Jesus? I believe you can still teach your child how to hit a home run and at the same time teach them that everyone on the team, including the equipment manager, matters in the eyes of God. I believe you can teach your child to be an incredible student by being faithful to use the intellect that God gave them without needing the validation of being first in their graduating class. If God blesses them by being first, then so be it. That means they have an additional responsibility in serving him under that title. Kids, I'm going to get to you too. You can outserve your parents and your siblings. When your parents ask you to help around the house, don't complain. Blow their minds away by going an additional step to serve them. Sweep not just what's in the line of sight, but also what might be under the cabinet as well. Here's one. Children, refuse to be petty by getting into an argument with your brother or sister. Just don't go there. Allow yourself to be wronged before getting into an argument. That will blow your parents' mind away. Parents, am I right? Okay, there we go. I see that hand back there, brother. But don't forget serving your brothers and sisters in Christ right here at the church. After all, we demonstrate to the world that we are Christians by our love for one another. Right now, we have needs in the children's Sunday school. I made the mistake of sitting in front of Rick and Giselle at the beginning of the service, and I felt two hands on my shoulder. Brother Blair. If you would remind, we need a Sunday school teacher for toddlers and a helper, right? So we've got two more do we need to have filled at this point, right? And we'd love to have substitutes and extra helpers to get in place even for future times. We need nursery workers. We have needs to help with wedding coordination. We have a work day that's coming up in two Saturdays where we got landscaping that needs to be done for the new building, an activity that will save us a bundle of money that can be used for the kingdom. We also have senior adults that need to be visited and possibly a few that need rides to the doctors. We have parents of young children that need a break and could use a free babysitter. Vacation Bible School is coming up. I'm sure Pam would love it if you signed up early. We got people that need to be discipled. If you are looking to serve, we can find something for you to do. Guaranteed. And then we have our community that needs service as well. We got special needs families that need help. Next Step Farms needs help out on their property. The Huntsville Pregnancy Resource Center is always needing volunteers. We desperately need workers in the Good News Clubs. Robert and Lindsay Smith are, are looking for people to help them run a sports clinic this summer as an outreach for their church. We got loads of options. Because here is what happens when we become a people of service. Listen up. Listen up. This is, this is important. This is the good part. We look like Jesus. We look like Jesus. You look like Jesus when you love your spouse as Christ loved the church.
You look like Jesus when you raise your children to serve and value the things of God first. You look like Jesus when you don't get drawn into petty arguments. You look like Jesus when you are pressure washing the sidewalk of the church. You look like Jesus when you go to Good News Club and the kids are climbing all over you. You look like Jesus when you're hugging on special needs families and making them feel welcome. All you have to do is be faithful in whatever God is laying before you right now, even if it seems inconsequential in your eyes. The most amazing thing in the world, the most amazing thing in the world is how insignificant you can become and still look like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a stirring sermon. First, Lord, there may be those of us that are under conviction that, that maybe we have been pursuing the wrong things, that we've been going about this the wrong way, that, that Lord, we are trying to outdistance everybody else and seeking the prestige of the world. Instead, Lord, we are to emulate you, you who love the least of these. And Lord, that is actually very freeing, knowing that we don't have to live up to the world's standards, knowing that, that we don't have to have some ideal of a legacy of some sort, Lord, that the world recognizes before we die. Because, Lord, you measure success by our faithfulness to you. You desire us to, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You want us, Lord, to, to serve others, to serve the least of these, to reach out and love, Lord, the unlovable, and that by doing this, Lord, we, we look like your son, Jesus. We don't need great resources and others in order to love others well. We just need to be faithful in the moment. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw our eyes to your son, Jesus Christ, the great king of the universe, who condescended to step into his creation and take on flesh to come as a precious baby so that he might grow up among us, Lord, perfect, and that he might serve others, that he gives of his precious time, he gives of, of his resources, he's utterly in dependence upon you, and he's faithful to you at every moment, and he's faithful to you even obedient unto death. And we know, Lord, that because he did so, you found that pleasing in your sight. And this wonderful, mysterious thing happened where he took upon our sin and we received his righteousness so that when you look upon us, you see the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make that our example, that you would help us to believe in that, that our, our faith would be secure in that atoning act, and that we would desire to emulate it. Allow us, Lord, to use the Lord Jesus as our example at all times. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.